Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Hi guys, um, we're going to be reading from 2 Samuel chapter 11, um, the first 17 verses. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a beautiful woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, Haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Thank you very much, Drew. Wow, what, what, a, what a reading, what a passage. This is kind of one of these, one of these stories that, that you hear as a child, but one of the stories that you, you never really get to ask too many questions about because it's so crazy with adultery and with murder. And I, I wonder, as we, as we kick off, I wonder, and I'm, I'm sure that maybe we've all seen somebody, and maybe it's even been ourselves who have thought that they were Mr. or Miss Perfect. 
you're probably thinking of somebody else now, and maybe a few of you are thinking, oh, that is probably me. And if, and this Mr. or Miss Perfect has, has tried to make everyone else perfect like them, maybe in the workplace or in school or college perhaps, and whenever someone wasn't perfect or whenever they didn't match up to Mr. and Miss Perfect's expectations and standards, they were criticised and judged. But then when this perfect person then makes a mistake, Everyone else are like vultures circling, ready to pounce as if to say, aha, not so perfect. Now it's payback time. They've condemned me and they've condemned everybody else. And now it's time for them to taste some humble pie. Seems a natural inclination of the heart where, where we love to see people get what they deserve. And whether it's on TV or in reality, apart from Liverpool winning the Premier League, no one wanted to see that. and They certainly didn't deserve it. But when you see someone being merciful towards someone who didn't deserve it, you just want to extend mercy to that person. So as we enter into the story today, this idea of mercy isn't in the top 10 list of things that you want to look for, but I want to encourage you to look out for it. Look out for this idea of mercy today. So let's, let's retell the story. Let's look at it in, uh, in 2 Samuel 11, verses 1 to 5. In verse 1, it says, In the spring... At the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. So David was anointed by God to be king, and part of his role was to be general, so to speak, to be head over all the troops and to lead them into battle. And so as king, David should have gone, but instead he stayed. So this is our first clue as to the root of David's moral failure. He should have gone, but instead he stayed. And so up to this point, King David is at his peak, the nation of Israel is established in the land. God's name and renown is spreading. God's promises the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are coming to pass. God's favor has been upon David. The Ark of the Covenant has been restored to Jerusalem, and it's become the entire center of worship. As David excelled, so did God's people. He led them well. But yet there's something different here. It just seems to take an absolute detour. And so to this point... David had often inquired of the Lord before going into battle. He'd often inquired of the Lord before going into battle. He'd often sought God's guidance and awaited his voice before moving. But yet here the pattern's broken and there's no inquiry and there's no seeking. And so it continues in verse 2. One evening David got up from his bed, walked around the roof of the palace. From there he saw a woman washing. Woman is very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him and he slept with her. David, the man after God's own heart, was not exempt from temptation. When he should have been in battle, he was lounging. And the old Puritans used to say that, that idle hands are the devil's workshop. Idle hands are the devil's workshop. And in and, and the text here, I've, I've highlighted David's first action. His first action, it, it all, he saw a woman, it all starts with a glance from the palace. And so what David does with that glance, and, and now there's nothing wrong with a glance, but what David does with a glance will determine whether he'll fall into temptation or whether he'll fall back in God. Allowing God to be the source, the, the source of his pleasure, the source of his satisfaction, the king's palace. King's Palace was a, was a high place in the city. It was overlooking the valley. And so you see in the slide that you're, you're overlooking the, the, the Valley of Armageddon or the Kidron Valley, it was known as. And, and the King's Palace is on top of that. And a couple of years ago, I got to stand there where the palace was. And you could see all the roofs of the houses down below. 
And so there's a general rule of thumb that the closer you were to the king physically, the closer you were to the king. So the closer you were to the king, the closer you were to the king. And so Bathsheba wasn't far away. David saw all he needed to, and, and to make matters worse, she was Uriah's wife. And you're saying, well, Math, it doesn't matter whose wife she is, he's still on the wrong. And, and he is. But Uriah was one of David's mighty men. A group of 30 trusted companions and warriors. Uriah was close to David, yet David does the unthinkable. Think about your close companions. That's who Uriah was to David. David saw her, he sent for her, and he slept with her. How could he? How could he? This is King David, the man after God's own heart. The man who's, who's written these incredible psalms. The man who's cried out to God these words and said, keep me from willful sins. The one who said uh, these words, this one, do I, one thing do I seek, and I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Here is David falling into willful, intentional, self-seeking sin without a care in the world. And we're all thinking, he should have known better. He should have known better. And so the text goes on to tell us that Bathsheba gets pregnant, word is sent to David, and then he's got a choice to make. He could own up, he could put his hands up, he could confess, but no, he begins to scheme and put a plan in place that'll culminate in the premeditated murder of one of his closest and mighty warriors, Uriah. And so for fear of being found out about his skirmish with Bathsheba, David tries to hide the pregnancy by bringing Uriah back from the battle to spend the night with his wife. And he tries on two occasions, firstly to give him a one-night holiday, and then the second to get him drunk. But Uriah wouldn't go down and sleep with his wife. You can look and read it in the text. Instead, it says in verse 9, instead, Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to the house. And David was told, Uriah didn't go home. And so I asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military camp? Why didn't you go home? And look at this for honor. Look at this for response. Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. My commander Joab and the Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, David, as surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. What a man of honor. Uriah's honor stands in stark contrast to David's infidelity. Yet David goes one further, as if that was bad enough. The neck and David, he goes one further and he sends a letter with Uriah. Can you imagine David writing a letter, putting it in an envelope or a scroll and giving it to Uriah? And it's to go back to Joab to request for Uriah to be positioned in the front line. In fact, Uriah had to go back out to the front line to carry his, his own death certificate in the hope that he'll get killed, thus letting David off the hook. And sure enough, he was posted on the front line. And when they were laying siege to the city, uh, David's front line was ordered to retreat, leaving Uriah exposed and killed. And so a messenger returns to David. And we didn't read this, but it, it reads in verse 25 on down the text. It says that David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as the other. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. So guys, in other words, war is hell. Soldiers will die. There will be collateral damage. We can't help it. So just don't worry about it. Guys, it's a reply of a king who has come to value his own life more than the lives of his soldiers. It's a reply of a good man gone bad. It's such a far distant cry from the guy that stepped up against Goliath. And so when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And then after the time of mourning was over, David 
had her brought to his house and she became his wife and she bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Verse 27 says, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And so God had no intention of letting David get away with sin. For if, if God had allowed this to go uncorrected, then David might be encouraged to go and do it again and again, thinking that his position and calling as king of Israel might give him the privilege of sinning with immunity. This one act affected him for the rest of his life. And this one act with Bathsheba would absolutely change the trajectory of his life and his family's life forever. Not only did he commit adultery with her, we can see in chapter 11, but he also arranged to have her husband killed in battle in the attempt to cover up the sin. And here's the thing, guys. In the, in the old uh, Jewish law, the penalty for adultery is death. Deuteronomy 22.22, you can check it out. Penalty for adultery is death. David should be in trouble. The penalty for premeditated murder is also death. So as if one wasn't, uh, wasn't going to confirm his death, this hero one certainly would. Exodus 21.12. Penalty for premeditated murder is death. So David is rightly deserving of murder. The law condemns him to death. There are no alternatives. And at present, Bathsheba is pregnant and she's mourning. Uriah is dead. David's in the clear. But again, verse 27, we read, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And so, so really the first part of the talk was kind of retelling the story of what is happening, the context, what that looks like, and the seriousness and severity of it. And so we're, we kind of left it at a, at a bit of a knife edge because, because the Lord knows that David is, is screwed up. David knows he has, but he actually hasn't confessed and he's tried to hide it. Seems that he's in the clear. All looks pretty good. Then we read that the, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And so we're going to jump back in now with chapter 12. Chapter 12 starts off with Nathan, a prophet, who comes on the scene. And we'll be able to read what he says here in, in, uh, in verses 1 to 6 in chapter 12. And so let's start at verse 1. Um, it says that the Lord sent, sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, and they, so Nathan said these words to David. Nathan was kind of playing a, playing a hypothetical to David. And Nathan says to David, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a, had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except the one little yule lamb that he had bought. He raised it and grew it up, grew it up with him, grew, and it grew up, grew, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, it drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who'd come to him. Instead, he took the yule lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the, the one who came to him. Wow. So David, remember, had been a shepherd at one time. And so David became really angry and he passed immediate judgment on the rich man, saying, as surely as the Lord lives, the, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Wow, he did such a thing and had no pity. And so Nathan 
we, we can see that God allowed David then to, to pronounce or to prescribe his own judgment. And Nathan ended up going on to say to him that you are that man. Nathan's next words were, you are that man. And so can you imagine David is, is absolutely raging with this rich farmer and that hypothetical. He's absolutely raging. And then Nathan catches him out and says, wow, David, you are the man. You are the man. So Nathan the prophet confronted David with a parable and his own condemnation of a selfish man in the story, convicting him for what he'd just done against Bathsheba, against Uriah and against God. David, in effect, pronounced his own judgment. He prescribed his own judgment. And Nathan said these words, you're the man. And these are some of the most haunting words that I've ever read in the Old Testament. David thought he was in the clear, but he's been found out. David had been described as a man after God's own heart. Yet here he's neck deep in sin. He's found out. And guys, we're tempted to say, well, he's clearly not a man after God's own heart if he's done this. Isn't that, isn't that the way our judgments go? He's clearly not a Christian because he's done that. She's supposed to be a follower of Jesus, but look what she's at. We can be so quick to rush to judgment. But right now, I, I want us to just put judgment on the back burner. I want us to just defer judgment for a moment. David has just prescribed his own judgment through a parable. Now he's been convicted of a sin. Look at his response. If you have a Bible in front of you, look at verse 13 and 2 Samuel 12. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David's response was, I have sinned against the Lord. Because of David's response, he was spared. And in Psalm 51, David's psalm of confession, he says at the very beginning, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. And at the end, he says these words, A broken and contrite heart you, Lord, will not despise. Have mercy on me, God, according to your unfailing love. Not according to what I've done, but according to your unfailing love. And he's saying, God, a broken and contrite heart you, Lord, will not despise. David was convicted. He knew what he'd done. And you know what the reality is? We could try and say, well, do you know what? He only apologized because he's found out. But he apologized because he was convicted. The conviction brought about a response of repentance. David was spared. David was spared from death because of his response. He finally threw himself onto God's mercy. And so remember in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter's response? Remember Peter uh, denied Jesus three times? He, he, went, he went off and... and and Peter's sorrow caused him to throw himself on God's mercy rather than away from God, like a response of Judas. One response leads to life, another response leads to death. And here's the key, the key moment in the entire narrative. He was forgiven. He was spared. God had mercy on him. There, yes, there were repercussions. David lost his son and his family would be in turmoil for years to come. But yet God's mercy was extended to offer him freedom from sin and a way back into communion with God. And so guys, a few weeks back, Dustin taught us about, bringing, about David bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into Israelite hands, and it was placed in Jerusalem. And so this was all done under the supervision of David. It was incredible. What a, what a moment. But within the, Ark, within the Ark were three things. There was the Ten Commandments, there was Aaron's staff, and then there was the manna that God had provided. So, but on top of the Ark, between the cherubim, there was what was known as the mercy seat. 
the place of God's dwelling. And so the ark was kept in the Holy of Holies. And, and on the top of the ark was this thing called the mercy seat. It wasn't a physical seat, but it was known as a place where God dwelled. And so the key to understanding the heart of God is this, that the purpose of the law is to show David his sin and how filthy he is and to cause him to repent. God was then able to judge him from the mercy seat. And so on the Day of Atonement, once a year, the Levitical high priest would enter the Holy of Holies and would sprinkle blood, the blood of the animal, on the mercy seat on top of the ark. And so both the sins and the guilt of the Israelites were cleansed by the sacrifices. I want to tell you, there is no sin too great for God's mercy. Amen. And so God judges us by the standards to which we hold others to. And so this is what God did with David. God intended to give mercy to David, but he let David set the level of his own mercy by proposing a fictitious crime that someone else might have done, a real hypothetical. Therefore, David learned such a lesson in humility and repentance. And guys, a thousand years later, there would come a greater one of actually the exact same lineage. And even through the line of David and Bathsheba, through their son Solomon, and his name was Jesus. As on the Sermon on the Mount, as the start of Jesus' ministry, he proclaimed these incredible words. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Guys, in her call to worship a few weeks ago, Katie summed it up so beautifully. And she said these words from Paul in Romans 5. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Church, the sins of humanity needed to be paid. And before we ever even turned to the Lord, before even of us ever came to be, Jesus died for us. And so God spared us from what we deserve because of his great love for us. And so guys, for, for those of us who love and follow Jesus, he has clothed you with righteousness, a right standing in relationship with him. Why? All because of his mercy. It's all because of the mercy of God. So the challenge for us then is, what do we do with the mercy of God shown through Jesus at the cross? What do we do with this mercy of God? I want to give you a couple of applications. And so here, here's some simple applications. First of all is guard yourself from sin. Guard yourself from sin. Be alert and be careful. For David, it all started with a glance. It wasn't just a mistake that David made. It wasn't that just that he, that he, that he momentarily gave into his humanity and failed in one small area. David literally turned from God. He rebelled. His departure from God wasn't accidental, but instead it was intentional and entirely voluntary. And so when it comes to this, I, I use the language of a glance, a gander, and a gawk. And so maybe for, for some of you guys who weren't born in Ireland, these words might sound kind of odd, but, but, but here it is, a glance, a gander, and a gawk. And as there is an intentionality about ourselves and we fall into sin, so there was here, and especially sexual sin. And it's so vital that we, 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 we recognize the warning signs early on. So you've got the glance, that's a one-off, just that initial look. You're, you're maybe walking down the street and you see that person, that's just a glance. But then the gander, you take a few more steps and, and you just get that second look. For some reason, the first look wasn't enough. You didn't see enough and something in your heart is saying, I need that. And so you get the gander, that second look. The glance wasn't enough. And then neither was the second one, the gander. And as you're walking on by, then you're what we call gawking. You're, you're, you're gawking, you're, you're taking a look and your eyes can't, 
can't go off them. It's that third look. It's that constant intentional look. And we've got Job in the Old Testament. He said these words, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look at a girl lustfully. I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look at a girl lustfully. And so I wonder, guys, do you find yourself at, at that one, two, and three stage, the glance, the gander, and the gawk? Do you find yourself quickly moving from one to two to three? Where it's just an innocent look, you just see somebody, and then you just end up seeing them again a second time, and then a third time, and it's this intentional sin of wanting something that you can't have. The reality is that while we might slip up and fall short, we need to put boundaries in place that, that will intentionally allow ourselves to see and act upon. Without boundaries, we simply go straight there right away. The, the late Norman Linus, uh, a disciple maker from, from the north of Ireland, used to say to lads that he discipled, be on your guard against girls' glory and gold. And so maybe for you girls, be on your guard against guys' glory and gold. You know, in society today, it's so true that the lure of money, sex, and power devastates all around us. It devastates lives. But yet having a deep awareness of the contours of our heart can actually help protect us and point us to Jesus when the lure of the world comes knocking at our door. And so when the lure of the world comes knocking at your door, what do you do? Where do you turn? Where's your first thought? Where's your second thought? Where do your feet go? What are your actions? What, where are your steps? And so unlike David, we need not take that second look. It starts so small and it harms so deeply. It controls so quickly and it devastates so comprehensively. So number one, guard yourself from sin. So the mercy of God isn't a free pass to sin, but instead it's what's offered to us as we acknowledge our own brokenness and our sin and shame before God. The mercy of God towards David was all the more beautiful in Psalm 51, simply because David recognized the gravity of his actions and the immeasurable love that God has toward him, as Tim so beautifully prayed. So guard yourself from sin so that the mercy doesn't become a free pass. So number two, freedom is found in being known. So one, guard yourself from sin. Two, freedom is found in being known. Perhaps you have been or you are caught up in sexual sin. Or maybe you're carrying the wounds of some past sexual encounters and they keep stealing your joy in Christ because the devil reminds you of the past as he's on your shoulder just reminding you of who you were and what you've done. I want to tell you today, there is hope for you. You know, the example of David should serve as hope, not guilt for you. The man after God's own heart fell so short, but the freedom he experienced in being found out brought about a repentance and a complete openness. Perhaps nobody else but you and Jesus know your deepest, darkest thoughts and secrets and knows what you're carrying, knows the weight of the guilt and shame that you're carrying. I want to tell you what Romans 8 verse 1 says. It assures you that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Guys, you can set down your baggage at the foot of the cross knowing that Jesus has dealt with it all and he's exposed it for what it is. And it does not satisfy, it does not bring satisfaction, it does not bring lasting pleasure, it does not bring joy. But only Jesus does. And so Jesus has dealt with it at the cross, he's exposed it for what he is. And the beautiful thing is he extends an offer of forgiveness towards you and the promise of new life in him. 
So like David, the law points to our guilt. It exposes our sin and our shame for what it is. But yet in repentance, like David, we can be completely forgiven. But guys, you can only receive the forgiveness insofar as you've understood the mercy that God has for us and what he's rescuing you from. It might be hard to get, I'm going to say it again, that you can only receive that forgiveness insofar as you have understood the mercy that God has for us and what he's rescuing you from. You know, David initially sought refuge in being hidden. Whenever all this happened, he tried to hide it all, he covered it up, and he sought refuge in trying to be hidden. His hiding place is no longer God. See, in the Psalms, David says that God is his hiding place time and time again, repeatedly. And somewhere in the middle here, somewhere in between, David's hiding place is no longer God, but himself. His hiding place was himself. Israel were prospering. Things were going well. Israel's King David was seemingly untouchable. That's a danger of prosperity, guys. Church, that is a danger of prosperity in 21st century Dublin. We forget about our absolute need for God. And instead, we're throwing ourselves on his mercy. We try to stand on our own. Instead of throwing ourselves on the mercy of God, we try and stand on our own. We become fiercely independent. We love these words. They're fiercely independent, only to find out that we're never actually designed for such independence. But really, true flourishing comes from knowing God and being known by him. We love this idea of being unlimited. But actually, our limitations in Christ are, are what brings us freedom. I love to write a book called Limited. Guarantee you, it never sells. It would still be wonderful to do. Our limitations in Christ are what brings us freedom. So two, freedom is found in being known. When, we, when we're known, we, we acknowledge that nothing is hidden before God. And despite our own brokenness and our own humanity, we can receive mercy because of who Jesus is and because of what he's done. So we can receive mercy. So first of all, mercy isn't a hall pass. Number two, freedom's been found in being made known. We can receive mercy. Then thirdly, thirdly, mercy triumphs over judgment. Something that James, Jesus, Jesus' brother says. He says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Earlier we were thinking, David, you should have known better. What are you playing at? And immediately we were tempted to rush to the judgment of one before considering our own hearts. We're sitting thinking, David, what are you at? And so guys, we can be so tempted to rush to judgment instead of mercy. And the reality of our lives is that we're often too quick to judge others. But yet whenever the shoe is on the other foot, we expect mercy. And so as a church, we're presently thinking through the steps involved in transitioning back to physical meetings. And so for some of you, you'll be raring to go. For others, you'll be more cautious. And so for some, this can't come soon enough. And then for others, it can wait that little bit longer. Church, regardless of where our brother or sister lands in this, we've got to be people who are quick to be merciful rather than quick to prescribe judgment. You know, Micah 6 verse 8 says these beautiful words. He, God, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. To love mercy means that when we have the occasion, when we have the occasion to judge someone or to decide how to deal with injustice that's been done, 
we instead choose to be merciful in our rebuke, in our response, or even in our dialogue with them. So with our brothers and sisters in Christ, as we navigate these tricky waters in the months to come, let us be slow to rush to judgment and quick to be merciful. Guys, the world is watching. And if we're to be a city on a hill, if we're to be the light of the nations, then we have got to be a merciful people. We've got to model what a merciful people is well on the inside among our brothers and sisters before being a merciful people on the outside the city of Dublin. If we can't do the inside well, there's no point in us doing the outside well because the people on the outside that come to know Jesus and see us will see how rotten we are on the inside. We need to model this well on the inside first and then work its way out. So number three, mercy triumphs over judgment. As we recognize the mercy that we've received from Christ, we begin to live out the beautiful attitude of Matthew 5 verse 7. Matthew 5 verse 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. As a church, the deeper in Christ that we dwell, the greater the mercy we lavish on others. You know, when David and Bathsheba we can be so tempted to rush to judgment on David. And we can, we can be so, so quick to, to rush to, to the forgiveness without actually dwelling on the severity and the gravity of the sin. But one thing I would encourage you to be quick to rush to is to look at God's response. Look at God's response and mercy that God had for him and the forgiveness that he lavished upon him. And yes, there were ramifications. David lost his son. David's family line uh, was in absolute turmoil. We're going to see in the next couple of weeks, as Andrew speaks next week, just the the impact of of some of these decisions. This was David's trial by fire, and and he screwed up. You know, Joseph and Potiphar's house, Joseph ran. He ran to God whenever Potiphar's wife came to him. He ran to God. In this case, David didn't inquire of the Lord. And all these battles leading up to this point, David inquired of the Lord and then he went. In this battle, it was, not a, it was not a battle with a sword, but it was a battle with a woman. In this battle, he failed. Why? Because he did not inquire of the Lord. And so church, those who have received mercy, give mercy. You know, I, I want to close today. And maybe, maybe today you've got, you've got feelings of unworthiness. Perhaps you have feelings of unaddressed guilt or shame. Could be a hidden sin. Could be something that you've been holding on to that no one knows about. I'd encourage you to, if you have an accountability partner or a close friend that loves you well, to tell them. To to open up, to to rip that band-aid off. There is freedom and found in being known. And if you don't want to do that, at least take it to Jesus. He cares and he loves. And he wants to take that guilt and shame off you. And he wants to clothe you with his righteousness. And so as we pray and as we sing our last song, why don't you take a moment now between you and God, right where you're at. doesn't matter if there's two or ten people in the room with you. Right where you're at. Thank him for the mercy that he has so willingly and costly lavished upon you. So that your response might be one of letting go of baggage. Or perhaps your response is one of extending mercy to others. I'm going to close in prayer here. And as I do, we're going to sing. And may in our song, may our song not just be you singing to a computer or singing to a phone. But may your song be one of you addressing Father God for the mercy he's lavished upon us. 
Jesus, I thank you that you paid the ultimate sacrifice for us. I thank you that you spared us from what our sins deserved. That, Father, you, um, you cast our sins as far as the east is from the west. And, Father, your love for us is as far as the east is from the west. I thank you that, that you loved us so much that you would send your only son to die for us. And that in return, we get your righteousness, we get eternal life, and we get life in the full, in the healing now. And so, Jesus, um, we, we pray that this example of David would, would serve as a positive one for us, one that where we would not fall into, one where, where we can see what it's like for a man after God's own heart to slip up, but also to see redemption in you. And Jesus, I thank you for countless second chances at the cross, a time after time after time you accept us back, that your mercies are new every single morning. So Jesus, I pray you'd have mercy on us. As we say in the words of Psalm 51, a broken and contrite heart, Lord, you will not despise. So Father, may our response be one of a broken and contrite heart as we worship you today, Jesus. Amen.